This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international programme of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett, and today I'm joined by head honcho of the We Made This podcast network, Tony Black. Hi, Duncan. Would you almost give me the rank of captain, or would I be a an admiral, or even a babmiral? You know, I didn't. That high up? I didn't dare ask. I was. I was wondering. Uh, you, you know, do you see yourself as a president, as a CEO, as a, as a, <laughs> a first minister? I don't know. What kind of title do you I, bestow upon yourself for such an august role? I, I think uh, those who uh, our own we made this uh, might call me a uh, authoritarian dictator. Uh, <laughs> oh, gosh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. Yeah, let's. Uh, pr- I always quite like. I always quite like president. Really, that's quite okay. good. Um, I always feel like President's I'd be like. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm swapping the. Uh, I'm swapping the sci-fi shows here, but I, I always think of like John Sheridan from Babylon Five when I think of a president. That's uh, not the yeah. ideal president. Okay. So yeah, that's who I can I, see that. I can much, see that. Much less handsome I thought, version. I thought you were going to go for for President Bartlett from uh, the West Wing, but yeah, John. Oh, Sheridan that's a good one. A good one too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, we are delving once again into the sanctuary, Tony. Your uh, yeah. show, which ran for a little while, a couple of years ago, on the We Made This Network, and in this episode, we're looking at, or you're looking at. I'm not doing much looking at it. Uh, you're <laughs> looking at this idea of uh, leadership, uh, presidents, prime ministers, um, the great leaders of our times, and how they have influenced or been influenced by Star Trek, which I think is a really fascinating topic. I mean. You know, a lot of people said we wouldn't have... I mean, obviously, we didn't quite get uh, Hillary Clinton as president, but maybe if we had, uh, Janeway would have had something to do with that. I know that, you know, uh, Star Trek Voyager was viewed in the White House during the original Clinton presidency. You know, there is something to be said for this idea that TV can put things in people's minds to some extent to kind of uh, lay the groundwork. And certainly it goes the other way. You know, the the leaders, I mean, most obviously with Kirk and Kennedy. Um, but I think it's fascinating the way in your discussion, you kind of tease out for all the Star Trek captains what their kind of real world parallels might be. Yeah. And I suppose it goes to the question of which comes first, the chicken or the egg in this case. Is Star Trek in some way predicting what's to come or in its own little way influencing what's to come? which you could say it could have done with with a character like Janeway, but is it equally receiving and then translating 
the kind of uh, leaders, particularly American leaders, given at Star Trek's an American show, but also because particularly in the 20th century, especially, they set the tone and the template post-war for the closest thing, in a way, I think you could say to a world leader in many respects, somebody that kind of figure after the war who rallied the United Powers and, you know, we were hopefully projecting towards a better future, much as America is a complicated country. So if you get someone like Kirk, which we talk about, for example, that cowboy diplomacy leadership has a hint of the Kennedys about it, has a hint of JFK, that charm, that charisma, you know, that ladies' mad magnetism, which arguably is part of the DNA of that formative character in Star Trek, you know, and and that's the most important thing to remember, much as... Star Trek has developed and evolved over the years with very different captains, right all the way up to someone like Christopher Pike right now that we're seeing. They all have some bearing on a connective to history, a connective to people who've come before. And as Star Trek reflects everything else that's, that's going on politically, culturally, so do the people who command these ships, command these space stations, whatever... Star Trek show we're talking about, they themselves are reflections of people who've come before or ha- or have aspects about them, as Kirk did Kennedy, that Star Trek is projecting into the future and telling these stories through. And it's just really interesting to see how that changes. And this is one of the big reasons I wanted to do this conversation, was to see how that changes and morphs through the 50 years up to the present day, and arguably how it's still doing that, really. You know, I think we, we, don't, we don't cover... Um, well, I don't know if we do glance on Pike. We might do. Can't quite remember. It's been a couple of years, but we go. I think you might all touch the way on him. To, we might do, but obviously we're getting more of a shape now of the kind of leader he's going to be and the kind of person he might reflect. You know, a, star, a, a strange new world's debuts. But I just think it's a it's a really interesting way of looking at the leadership in Star Trek because I think it's it's mm. definitely there in everybody. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I think there's definitely this sort of question. Okay, if Lorca is Trump, is Pike Biden? <laughs> sort of younger Biden, this kind of you know uh, amiable yeah. cowboy type. <laughs> you can kind of you can kind of see it with the grey hair and everything. I don't know, but I mean, certainly in the in the years since you recorded this discussion, uh, you know, Star Trek has changed and the world stage has has changed. I mean, these days we'd be thinking, you know, who's Putin? Who's Zelensky? I was thinking, does Rios have a kind of Zelensky energy to him? I feel like in some ways maybe he does. <laughs> Putin, I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, all the baddies, you kind of end up uh, drifting towards Descartes, maybe. He, he feels, in, in some ways, because he yeah. feels like the most realised, because he is such a politician. I mean, he's a villain in so many ways, but he is also a very canny politician. Uh, he's also, uh, I mean, he's a bit of a Trump, really, isn't he? He's a narcissist. He's a kind of truth bender extraordinaire. He's, he's too smart to be Trump, though. Character, I think. I think, I think he's. Yes. <laughs> you know, I think he's. Um, I think Putin, someone like that, maybe. Yeah, because because for all his flaws, he's not a stupid man in any way, in any way, shape, or form. So, you've hit on a fascinating flip side a conversation we never had actually, which is the villains. Who do the villains reflect? That would be a great follow up podcast to this actually. That uh, who knows, maybe one day we'll do somewhere. But um, but yeah, it, it's. I think the. The leaders, at least, I think they are, they are, they are continuing to reflect. I mean, it's interesting to think about, and we, I don't know if we get into this as well. It's interesting to think about who would, what kind of Starfleet captain might we have had in the seventies? You know, if we'd have had a new cast or a new characters or anything like that. And I know we were going to have Phase Two, 
in the 70s would if we'd have had the phase two season in like series in like 60 76 77 as was planned would Kirk have been a, a bit of a sh- I mean we I suppose we do see this in the films but would he have been maybe even a corrupted tainted version of himself mm. you know after the Nixon you know administration it makes me wonder if well, they'd have gone do down see, that road we do see Kirk uh we do see Kirk kind of go to the Nixon to some extent so, um, I mean I suppose yeah uh, even in the motion picture Kirk is is not as charming and not as nice as he was, you know, mm. of old. And I guess, you know, you have that parallel. Only Nixon could go to China by the time of uh, <laughs> Star Trek VI. So, yeah. you know, who knows? That's an interesting that's an interesting kind of thought experiment, which I suppose is what this whole, you know, topic is really. I mean, the, the other thing is obviously, so the real world's moved on, Star Trek's moved on. I mean, in Discovery, we've had a whole season with a president as a pretty significant recurring character um and interestingly i think a lot of people assumed she was going to be a bit of a villain when she was first introduced yeah. but in fact uh she was not at all she was quite sympathetic quite relatable decent character but you know still a politician you got the sense this was her job and she kind of knew what she was doing and i think it's interesting because we've seen presidents before i mean obviously we had uh you know the president who wasn't above the law in star trek six we yeah. had the president who fell for the kind of uh, military coup, basically, in um, Homefront and Paradise Lost. We, we've sort of had these glimpses of Federation presidents before, but we've never spent an extended period of time with them and kind of got to know them as a character. And I think that was an interesting choice on Discovery's part to actually bring that character forward and sort of uh, investigate a little bit what that relationship between, you know, the military Starfleet and the kind of political leadership is, um, which is something that has never quite been resolved, I don't think, really in a kind of totally plausible way, if you know what I mean. We kind of just accept we see everything through the Starfleet perspective, but it definitely adds a whole interesting dimension to it. And for anyone who wants, you know, the West Wing in space, it's another kind of uh, <laughs> gesture in that direction. Yeah, which we talked about, didn't we, when we um, we talked to Keith DeCandido <clears throat> about Articles <clears throat> of the Federation, which is very much the West Wing meets Star Trek, which is a great novel that gets yeah. into a lot of that kind of stuff. Maybe in the 90s, there was a difference, and maybe the later, maybe more the 90s here, where we didn't, the reason we didn't see presidents and these bigger federation leaders, although obviously we did see leaders of other, you know, uh, races, people like Martok, you know, and all these kind of guys who were very high up the chain. But even then, in a lot of these, a lot of the Romulans, the Klingons, everything, we never really often saw the chancellors, or they were very sort of, in the background kind of figures or the Praetor or whoever. And it or maybe it was the fact that after Reagan and Gorbachev and the end of the Cold War, the leaders, and I'm not saying that Clinton wasn't, you know, a big figure, because obviously he was, but it was a different kind of decade maybe in terms of the fact that since Star Trek has come back nowadays, and maybe since 9-11, because I suppose, you know, it started to change then. Maybe the, the role of politics and leadership in, in people's daily lives has become so much more powerful and so much more present. I mean, even when I was in my 20s, I could go a, quite a while without thinking about the Prime Minister of the UK or the President of the United States. You know, I, I, and yeah, maybe it's partly being older that you do think about these things more. But I don't know. I think maybe something slightly changed in how most people engage with politics whether they hate it or not it's much more present these days so perhaps 
the reason that Star Trek kind of kept a lot of the president, Federation presidents and a lot of these bigger world leader figures in the background was because they maybe were slightly more in the background in a more stable world, you know, a more stable and for a time in the 90s, fairly unipolar world with the, with the states and everything. And maybe, and that feels like when we did see these presidents, they were quite, they were quite anemic almost. They were quite functional or they, they, they feel, mm. they felt like they didn't have much power. They're functional because they're getting on with the job, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, that's part of it. And mm. I think, I, I think one thing I noticed when Biden became president is I was sort of thinking, why haven't we heard anything about American politics for a few days or a few weeks? Or, yeah. you know, months? <laughs> it's like they recede into the background because they're just sort of getting on with it. And it makes you realize, you know, it, it is the Trumps and the Johnsons and the Thatchers, I suppose. It's the kind of really divisive sort of difficult figures who are constantly in the news and constantly kind of causing trouble one way or another. And often, I suppose, if they are just kind of getting on with the job, you don't hear as much from them. So I think that's an interesting element. We, we've also, of course, in the time since you recorded, we had Stacey Abrams on Discovery, yeah. controversial uh, pick. I mean, beloved of many Star Trek fans, uh, a massive Star Trek fan herself. But I know there've been there was a little bit of a backlash uh, there from the fans who don't uh, agree with her politics or who you know coming from the other side of things. I mean, it should be said, Trek FM is a broad church. You know, we do have listeners who don't agree with probably your politics or my politics or your guest's politics. Uh, if you you know, I mean, obviously this was a show that was put out originally on your your network. Tony, there may be stuff that people don't agree with. Uh, the Babel Conference is the place, I think, for follow-up. You know, if people want to discuss some of these uh, thoughts, some of, you know, the things we've said, some of the things you say in the show, let us know. It's, you know, it's a great forum for civil, <laughs> you know, good-natured debate without hopefully turning into something something kind of nasty. It's, it's That's the debating floor of the, of the Federation, you know, that we can... Um, we can discuss these things. Uh, and and it, I think it's it's an interesting discussion. It, it'd be a great one to hear from listeners on because it opens up a lot of questions. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you're, you're right to put that little disclaimer in, I guess, because there is, you know, there, there is a lot of, I mean, I just saw just just the other day a, a, uh, a post from, I think it was Fox News, talking about how Strange New Worlds has, has done what ne would never happened in previous Star Trek. It's gone woke. <laughs> Fox News, like, 55 years late. Yeah. Headline, so. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it made me chuckle a little bit. Yeah. But, you know, there, there may be some people yeah. who feel that. In fact, I know there are some people who feel that because I've been having discussions lately with people on boards after on Facebook and things about Picard and such. So, you know, it, it is a broad church, and everyone who listens to this knows where our politics lies, I think. And I think it's... I think it doesn't take away from how interesting the portrayal of, of leaders and captains particularly and commanders on Star Trek is because, and I think this will carry on. I think this will carry on in whatever shows we get subsequently. I think you'll be able to see it in, in some of the other shows that haven't been discussed in this way, in the same way, like Lower Decks or Prodigy, you know, and I think it will be really interesting to see how that, how that tracks as well. And I, I think, it, it, like you said, it opens up questions. It opens up possibilities, ideas, which is what Star Trek's all about. Whether Whatever side of the political spectrum you fall, and fair enough if you, <laughs> if you disagree. <laughs> fair enough. You mentioned Picard. I mean, we recently just had the end of season two of Picard. Uh, again, controversial uh, season. I mean, it, it, I think you and I are on the same page about that one. I've seen a lot of people who loved it and said it's their favourite uh, mm. thing since 
Star Trek came back. So, you know, it's definitely divided people. But but it is interesting, this question of what happens to Picard as a character. And I think a lot of people had imagined him in this sort of ambassadorial role, in this kind of political, mm. sort of going into politics somehow, yeah. this sort of elder statesman. And they didn't do that. Although when you were talking about Picard in the show, I was thinking, well, if there is a politician who he reminded me of in that first season, like start of the first season, it's the kind of Jeremy Corbyn. You know, it's the kind of grumpy <laughs> old man, basically, who knows he's been right for his entire life. Uh, but everyone just keeps giving him stick about it. <laughs> you know, so he's kind of retreated yeah. to his allotment or, or to his vineyard. But... <laughs> But who knows, in season three, maybe they'll move in that direction. I mean, I think a lot of people did always want to see sort of President Picard. It's like with President Archer, you know, mm. a lot of people want to see President Archer. And that might yep. be the opportunity to do the kind of West Wing show. But um, I don't know. I mean, other than obviously Eisenhower was a president who'd had like significant military role beforehand. I feel like it's not that common. I mean, a lot of uh, presidents, I suppose, have, have done military service or leaders have done military service in their country. But to go from, you know, commanding the flagship of a navy to then commanding the whole country is, uh, or, or planetary, you know, organisation or whatever, is uh, a stretch. They're different skills that are involved. Mm. Um, yeah. And I don't think we're going to see Picard flexing those muscles, but who knows, maybe that's something in his future. You know, maybe maybe he'll be the new Biden, the, you know, extremely elder statesman um, <laughs> who's, who's going to kind of turn things around. Maybe, maybe it it could be. It it, it will make it. It would be a lovely way to end it all, <laughs> really. But um, <laughs> we'll have to see. We'll have to see. I th- I think it's it always takes a bit of time, doesn't it, for these things to settle and for you to really get a beat on, particularly who they reflect. You know, I think mm. I think we'll know a little bit more about you know if, going back to the 90s you, you you get a sense of it but i think we'll know a little bit more particularly about the modern stuff you know maybe maybe about 10 years well after we see how the next few years shake out with biden and whether trump comes back and whatever happens there and and mm. and i think and and because the and leaders- also how long biden is around for i mean actually you know talking well, yeah. about parallel with pike i mean pike is a captain who knows his days are numbered you know he's kind of going back into command with this weight hanging over his shoulders of of mortality i mean biden is a president who it it seems unlikely he's going to serve out two terms say i mean you know whether he makes it to the end of the first term i, I don't know he he's definitely someone who that that is a question mark hanging over him mm. do you know what i mean like how long does he last and what happens next and you know hopefully uh, he, he's doing great and, you know all is well but there's definitely that kind of question of mortality hanging over him i suppose in a way yeah. that we haven't had for a while i think the assumption is that he won't run a second term for a lot of people partly because of his age but trump isn't far behind him trump's maybe only about four or five years i think behind biden so again we're they're old men you know even in the context of the presidency and presidents a lot of them do tend to live very long lives i mean someone like jimmy carter's still alive and he's nearly 100 years old so there are people who they, they do have long lives but very few of them are serving into their 80s, you know, doing these kind of roles. And we've moved very much, if you look at the 90s, they were relatively young world leaders in some respects. You know, Clinton was, what, in his late 40s, early 50s, something like that. You had Blair, who was really young, you know, in the UK. And we've gone from that to very, very old men. And Putin, again, he's in his late 60s. You know, the the villain of the piece, if you like, from, from the Western perspective, at least. And so, so it's interesting how, as we've become more polarized and fractured, politics are steered more towards these older men and certainly not older 
you know, wise grandmaster figures. Trump certainly isn't that. And to, and it's questionable whether Biden is, you know, for a lot of people. So it's, it's very, and Boris Johnson certainly is, certainly isn't from our perspective. So, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting how then Star Trek will pick up and reflect that in many ways. And I think with Strange New Worlds, with Pike now and the Pike we're seeing, which, and obviously when, uh, we recorded this episode, when I recorded this episode, Strange New Worlds, I think probably had just been announced or we were waiting for an announcement about that because we knew it was going to happen. So we've got more of a beat on Pike. And I think Pike is, is, meant to be a road back to the kind of centrist president, if you like, that person who is a little bit more stable and someone you can trust. And I think it's the hope that Pike reflects a president we might continue to have in the United States. But like you said, I think quite aptly, his days are numbered. And I think <laughs> that might yet quite, quite turn turn out to be quite prophetic in in the real world, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see. Who knows? Mm. Um, I mean, this is an episode that will, uh, yeah, will certainly age in interesting ways, I guess. It will. But um, it's, a, it's a great topic and great to include in our, you know, in our feed on Primitive Culture. So hope you all enjoy it. Joining me this week, anyway, is Mac Boyle, host of the Holodeck is Broken podcast to discuss the of the Star Trek universe and how the many shows and motion pictures portray these characters as analogous to some of our modern political and societal leaders over the decades. Mac, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Oh, absolutely. Great pleasure. I've been loving the show so far. Oh, thank you. That's really nice. That's great. That's one listener. That's good to, that's good to know. <laughs> one listener at a time. Yeah, 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 exactly. So tell us then, tell us about your podcast, The Holodeck is Broken then, because... Um, it's uh, it, it, this this is this is an interesting project, and is is it something that's been going for a while? Is it fairly new? Tell people about it. it it's fairly new. It started after the first of the year. Uh, we I have three co-hosts, uh, my wife Laura and our friends Eris and Z, and we are rewatching all of Star Trek from the very beginning. And the the hitch is that we have sharply differing levels of Trek experience. Uh, I have read books i mean i i've i've read the the next generation technical manual and i have opinions on deep sub canon type of stuff uh my <laughs> wife grew up with it and has watched all of it uh for the most part uh eris has watched some of it ha- is really conversant in in the lingo and all that sort of thing but our friend z has never watched a second of it as we began our rewatch right. Uh, so we are coming at it from four different perspectives, and I, I think it's more interesting for me to see, as at least so far, the original series episodes through fresh eyes. Some of them don't age so hot as, as I'm as I'm realizing, <laughs> and uh, it's it's interesting. And I think another hitch, we, another thing we've written into our format is that uh, I think I know that I will have a tendency to ramble about some of those deep dive Star Trek issues. And there, there's a, a, uh, a feature in our show that uh, if I start to get too off on a, on a deep Trek tangent, uh, the others can uh, hit a buzzer that we have when we record right. and I have to be quiet for 30 seconds. <laughs> That's brilliant. How often have they hit the buzzer so far? This is the question. At least three times a show. (laughs) 
there, there's that's there's good. been a couple of times I've even had to hit it on myself because I know I'm going I'm going <laughs> off in a direction. I'm like, no, you know what? I got me. You guys go for there. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That that's a, that's a good little that's a good little addition. And you need you need to you need to try and hit like um hit like a, a target. Like see if you can get five in one episode because that <laughs> that's really going to be. I think the goal they had for me was to get to a certain point where they didn't need it anymore. But I think that's a much <laughs> much more interesting goal to have. Yeah. You need to scale it up, not bring it down, definitely. <laughs> it sounds great. I mean, it's really nice as well that you get to do that with your wife. That's a really nice that's a really nice thing for podcasting. That's not something everyone gets to do. So that must be a nice thing. It, it is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've been on a couple podcasts and varying different formats and it's it's nice that she and I can do it cuz especially now because with covid our our shows have been a little bit derailed. Yeah. We haven't been able to do that same format for a while cuz we can't have people over to the house to record. So Laura and I have just been doing sort of one show about a particular iteration of Star Trek moving sort of backwards the opposite direction through the space-time continuum, not unlike the anti-time anomaly in All Good Things, which is about the time where one of my friends would hit hit the buzzer. (laughs) So this is why... It's probably a good job we don't do this po- that podcast together because I don't think I would tell you to hit the buzzer. I think we'd both go down that rabbit hole, so it's quite good. Overwhelm them, yes. You're you're absolutely <laughs> right. But yeah, brilliant. Okay, well, well, we'll shoot out some links for where people can find The Holodeck is Broken towards the end of the show and uh, point people in the right direction, absolutely. But it's been re- it's really nice to get you on to talk about this topic, which was one that you you suggested when, uh, when we started talking about uh, you coming on The Sanctuary. I, I, I've said to people... Choose a topic. Let's see what we what comes up. And I suppose the question that we're going to pose today is, is there something to the idea that the leaders in Star Trek, the men and women sitting in the captains or the commander's chairs or, you know, space station offices are either designed to or sort of by default represent our leaders in society beyond the series whenever they exist? So James T. Kirk was born in the Johnson administration of the mid-1960s. But his swaggering all-American masculine brio and and certain liberal values track with the idealised image of the late John F. Kennedy. Jean-Luc Picard represents a stability within the late 1980s and early 1990s as perhaps befitting the so-called end of history, which we've talked about briefly on this podcast before. Benjamin Sisko prefigures the arrival of Barack Obama over a decade later as the first black president of the United States. But who exactly influenced whom in some senses? The list goes on. And there are some fascinating comparisons to be made across each of the series in the franchise between leaders fictional and real. So through Star Trek, are we able to map politically the eras and the characters of the Western world's often divisive and complex points of leadership? So, I mean... Broadly, Mac, what do you think about that? I mean, we'll get into this in more detail, but do you think that is exactly what happens with Star Trek? Is it that pointed that a lot of the leaders in that show represent our leaders? I, I think, uh, yeah, exactly with, with the Kirk and Kennedy analogy, it's hard to not think about it when you're watching the original series. And I think it becomes a little scattered and a little haphazard as things go on. But there are certainly some corollaries that you can draw between how the various uh, leads of the series reflected the world and certainly the 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 figures that define the, uh, the, uh, the the worlds of those particular eras. It's it's interesting, and I think there's some analogies that aren't necessarily what you would think of on face value, but if you dig a little deeper, you're thinking, 
That's interesting that it, it came about in this period of time and it may have either influenced the world or was influenced by the world immediately preceding it. There, there's a lot of points to get into on that. And it's it's not an easy answer for a short answer. Yeah, absolutely. It's it is. We'll get we'll, like, like I say, we'll get into it. But there are different shades to different characters for sure. Before we do get into it, though, Mac, I wanted to say, I, I kind of ask anyone, everyone who comes on the show, you know, I want to get a little bit of insight into your fandom. So tell us a little bit about Star Trek and your fandom. And, and I mean, where, how long has you, have you been a fan? Have you been a fan all your life? Where did it all begin? Uh, I think I was first a fan uh, at about seven or eight years old uh, with a, a network broadcast of The Voyage Home. And ah, uh, nice. yeah. And that that brings you in. And uh, after that, I don't remember much. It was such a steep, deep dive. Like by six months later, I had watched all of the movies and was living and breathing with the last few years of the next generation and uh, have not looked back since. There have been some times I think late adolescence, I may have uh, tried to be a little cooler than I was, but that that didn't pay off so hot either. So <laughs> I, I, I always, it's it, it's like the church you have growing up. You can always go back home. They'll always let you back in. You and I all have similar stories there, I'd say. Uh, I would say it's around a similar time that I I first got into it and yeah like you when I got into my late teens and maybe early 20s I uh I was trying to be cool and it uh <laughs> it's a, that sort of correlated with Enterprise being on as well and I was at the time less hot on Enterprise really so you know um so yeah I, I get where you're coming from absolutely but yeah it's it is the older I've got yeah the more I do come home to Star Trek and and I mean the voyage home what a what a place to start yeah and and <laughs> I think yeah I, I saw Rathacon shortly after that and then by then I was hopeless it was never going to turn yeah. back at that point fully so understandable absolutely so what we're going to do for this podcast we're going to sort of go chronologically and we're going to move from the 60s through to the modern day and talk about the particular captains and where they might fit in this political paradigm that we've that we've discussed. So we've, we've talked briefly about it a minute ago, but let's talk first about Ke Kirk as Kennedy and whether or not this, this parallel kind of fits because obviously originally, you know, as been, as has been discussed in, in many places and over the years, Kirk was modeled particularly on Horatio Hornblower from the CS Forrester novels. That was, that was Roddenberry's principal inspiration for that character and for in many senses, the show, as well as the the obvious uh, inspirations of, 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 of the Western with wagon train and all these kind of things. But I think it certainly feels like Kirk has a particular Kennedy-ish aura about him. It's so interesting. And uh, I'm suddenly blanking and I'm going to have to turn in my nerd card. Uh, it's it's the Savage Curtain where, where Lincoln shows up, right? I think so. I, th I, I, you will know more than me. I bet because you're watching them as well. You're watch rewatching them. It's been a few years for me. I think you're right. Yeah. Yes. And 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 uh, Kirk talks about how oh oh Lincoln's my hero. I'm like man, y you know you were more into Kennedy than Lincoln historically speaking. <laughs> yeah, because Kirk is is the is the swaggering romantic hero, you know, and Kennedy certainly had an eye for the ladies. <laughs> you know, there's no getting away from that. If if the Savage Curtain had been rewritten with Kennedy showing up, Kirk and Kennedy would have gotten along splendidly if they weren't competing for the uh, attentions of 
some young woman who was on the show that week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah, I suppose it it fits as well in that I, the influence of Kennedy, because Kennedy was a fairly liberal president. You know, he wanted to bring in you know reforms at the at the start of the sixties. He was the guy who wanted principally to get man on the moon, and he put a lot of that together. And obviously he was assassinated before the the vision for America, perhaps he wanted, would have been able to see fruition. But equally, it conflicted with the start of the Vietnam War. So there were elements of conservatism with him as well. So he he wasn't a completely clear package down down the middle. But I I suppose Kirk is an idealised version of that kind of leader isn't he he's he's that he's that idealized romantic hero yes and and kirk has has some of that hawkish sensibility that kennedy certainly had Mm. i mean he is certainly there to promote federation values and there was not i mean you could try to hang soft on communism on kennedy simply because nixon was the one that was on tv that night as well but you look into the history of Kennedy, he, he is not the, the dove or the idealized liberal icon Mm -hmm. that, that perhaps his death made him out to be in, in, Mm -hmm. in, in, in our hopes to, of what he could have been. It's true. It's true. He, he, he perhaps represented an idea himself more than the reality, the complex reality of what he was dealing with at the time. And I guess that's the same for Kirk. I mean, there are lots of, original series episodes where Kirk sort of runs up against the realities of a situation. And he, there are, I, I always feel there are times Kirk makes a, a more conservative or, and I don't mean that necessarily in the, in the political means, but a more of a guarded choice or a complicated choice than you might think he would make. You know, there are, there are times I think that in certain episodes where he surprises you. And I, th- I think that's, that's a level of duality in Kirk's character that maybe, maybe both Kennedy and Roddenberry shared. Yeah, possibly. and I think that's that's the other corollary there. Do, you, do, you, do one wonders if Roddenberry saw himself as a Kennedy as a Kennedy esque or a, a man of Kennedy's time, and therefore Kirk is a reflection somewhat of Roddenberry, and therefore you know a couple of layers of copies, and it, it becomes a little a little more oblique in its depiction yeah if, if roddenberry could hang out with kirk and kennedy they would all get along thoroughly <laughs> as well yeah because roddenberry himself were was a little kennedy-ish in his eye for the ladies and he's you know his own politics which seems to seems to have that duality in there as well i suppose as as well you know i mean they they were they are both kennedy and roddenberry were both war heroes within their own certain paradigms weren't they they both fought, fought in, they both served in world war ii they both had experiences there and i and i guess particularly roddenberry had had more of a traumatic experience didn't he in his world war ii service yeah the, I, i've been doing a, little, a lot more reading on roddenberry's life lately and i was struck by he his most harrowing experience during world war ii was uh, a a bomber mission that went south near Espiritu Santo Island mm. and uh, he, two of Menander's command died. And it's interesting as is emblematic with a lot of stories from Roddenberry's biography. There are a lot of conflicting memories and reports of what happened. Uh, many mm. of the men who served with him 
decades later thought Roddenberry was at fault for the incident. But the record showed that, you know, uh, the, his military commanders uh, exonerated him of any blame in the incident. But it happened almost exactly at the same time that uh, John F. Kennedy was in command of the PT-109. So mm. uh, you, you would think Roddenberry being a man of that era would say, oh, Kennedy has this sort of, you know, brave and impressive World War II uh, service. So do I. Maybe I'm like Kennedy. And maybe this guy I'm going to put on this spaceship should be like Kennedy, too. But that might be a little bit of psychoanalysis of Roddenberry. And that would be a whole podcast in and of itself. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot out there about Roddenberry's mindset with with this and, and how maybe World War Two. I mean, I, 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 I don't know about you. And you're watching the original series again, Mac, or you have been. I the World War Two is all over the, the original series. It's all over it. They, they, and, and, you know, you could say the same about a lot of 90s Star Trek as well. But particularly TOS, it is so obsessed with the Second World War and trying to make sense of the Second World War. And it, there are episodes, I mean, Court Martial, for example, is a good one. That is all about, that feels like Roddenberry sort of porting his own experience with, the, with that bombing mission into a story for Kirk. And and you know it really does feel like he's he's play he's using Star Trek to sort of play on his own history. And, and then you 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 widen the lens a little bit and you wonder how much of that is Gene Roddenberry and how much of that is Gene L. Coon because it it becomes well, very obvious pretty quick that uh, the authorship of Star Trek is marginally Roddenberry's, uh, especially for the things that fans attach to and, and love the most. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, there's a lot of uncertainty there, particularly about yeah who wrote what, but. Yeah, so I suppose, you know, you can see a parallel between Roddenberry Kirk and Kennedy as those kind of, in their in their own mind, sort of idealised, fairly liberal war heroes or heroes who aren't quite necessarily as liberal as they want to make you believe. Or, are, or when you look deeper, <laughs> there is more going on. But I definitely think Kirk is a sort of a little bit of wish fulfilment about an era that maybe America in the 60s didn't quite get to have from their leader. So why don't we talk a little bit about the uh, the 80s and 90s then because there's quite a few there's quite a few captains here to sort of pick through. I don't know if Jean-Luc Picard really stands out as someone who is particularly analogous to a a president at the time. I I, I definitely think that or, or any kind of leader. I definitely think that um the next generation exists in the Reaganite, Thatcherite, neoliberal era. Don't get me wrong. I, I definitely think there are things in the next generation that are exploring that sort of neoconservatism that came in during that that time. But I don't see Picard as a particular. It's it's less easy to pick, to place Picard as a Reagan as it is Kirk as a Kennedy. Absolutely. Uh, there, you couldn't think of two. Yeah, Picard is is by no means a a Reagan reflection. It, it it's sort of laughable to try to con, con, compare the two. But it's interesting, you know, in in the eighties with the the sort of Wall Street greed is good sort of era. And this is not to say that Picard has a a greed mentality, but he has a an aura about him that is almost a perfected 80s CEO as opposed to a president. He leads by consensus, which, you know, if you've you read any kind of management book, he's uh, that 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 has a certain 
fuel to that kind of thinking. And he even wrote, and I say wrote in in quotes, a leadership book. There is a, a Make It So, Leadership Lessons from Jean-Luc Picard, a actual leadership book written by people who write leadership books right, in okay. his voice. And it's just those same kind of lessons using examples from the next generation. So he even wrote one of those books. He's and of course, to perfectly reflect the 80s, he's never more than three feet away from his therapist. So that's an interesting (laughs) thing to note. Yeah, that's that's very true. That's that's a re- really interesting take, though, on Picard. Actually, I've, I don't think I've heard that before. I mean, I've I've definitely heard the idea that he's he's very much a, a, a maybe analogous to a system of order. You know, a system of late eighties, early nineties. You know, political order at the end of the Cold War when he represents a stability. The next generation represents a certain stability, and this is something I think we will get into in a in a future podcast. The sort of the place of what he's known as Picard's galaxy. You know, this very sort of post-Cold War ordered 90s fixture before that starts to steadily change before 9-11. But the idea of him as, as this as this sort of fixed CEO, that, 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 that's that's a really interesting one. Because like you say, there isn't any greed involved. I mean, he's, you know, there, there are particular points where, you know, in the neutral zone, for example, Picard makes the point that, you know, money is gone and we don't go by those uh, by those systems. So it's not, a, it's not a comparison about money, as you say. It's a comparison, I guess, about the idea that he is trying to be less of the well you know kirk was famously always described as a bit of a cowboy diplomat you know that's not picard picard is the like you say he leads by a level of consensus he is far more the diplomatic he's more like an ambassador you know that go traveling in his you know space cruiser (laughs) bringing diplomacy to the universe yeah no absolutely yeah Uh, so yeah it's a tenuous tie to to put him in the world of the 80s as as we we lived through it but there there are some there, there are some corollaries there to definitely look at as as you as, as you watch those episodes yeah for sure absolutely cisco then obviously deep space nine's first commander then captain i mentioned at the top of the episode that there is you know there is the obvious immediate sort of not comparison but point of cisco and obama but I suppose that is it's, – it's, it's obvious and it's also retrospective because at the time, Obama wasn't president. You know, he was, he was around. He was, you know, involved in politics, I imagine. I don't know for sure, but I imagine he was in the 90s. But he wasn't – nobody expected that to happen in 10 years. So Cisco is not a, a, a direct comparison point to Obama. Obama really became on the national stage when he was running for the U.S. Senate in 2004. And by that point, DS9 had been off the air for five years. So, yeah, they're not contemporaries, culturally speaking. Uh, Yeah, And there was some coverage as Barack Obama was first running for president in 2008 in in some Trek circles like, oh, you know, uh, you know, drawing, trying to draw some comparison between him and Cisco. But as far as temperament is concerned, there couldn't be, again, two more different people. <laughs> really, you, when you think about it, Obama has a has a Picard like level of cool reserve to him. It's interesting. He, Obama really may be the first world leader that he, who himself was influenced by Star Trek as much as he his 
time in office might have influenced the Star Trek that we uh, watch today. There are a couple of just anecdotal evidence. I mean, he had Nichelle Nichols yeah. as a guest in the the Oval Office. There's a very famous picture of uh, she and him offering the uh, the uh, the live long and prosper Vulcan salute. I think he was even on the record saying Michelle Nichols was a big deal for him uh, when he was growing up. And there's even the anecdote that Leonard Nimoy told in the last few years of his life that he was uh, at a party at a, at a brownstone in Washington, D.C. Uh, for I, I don't remember who invited him or what the context of the party was. But he, he, the way he tells the story is one of the presidential candidates came up to me and gave me the Vulcan salute. And then he yeah. said, I, I'm not going to tell you who it was. <laughs> but it was not John McCain. And so we all <laughs> take the story in and think, okay, process of elimination, carry the three. I, I, I think Obama <laughs> may have been a Star Trek fan or, you yeah. know, and we, we say fan. I, I don't know if he'd be eager to come on either of our shows, but he's uh, uh, certainly watched those and internalized the, uh, the hopefulness of the Roddenberry ideal and, trying to consciously or unconsciously bring that into his his rhetoric and, and the way he ran things while he was president. Yeah, he's he's I think you're absolutely right there. He definitely feels I mean, I've always thought that Obama is is a little while he's very cool and he's got, you know, a lot of people think he's quite I also think he's a bit of a geek, Obama. And I, I, in an endearing way. And I think he's always sort of worn that with a little bit of, a little bit of that on his shoulder. And I mean, hindsight is a wonderful thing, particularly now with Obama. I mean, <laughs> I don't, I don't think there's many people now who wouldn't yearn for the time that, that he was president. Not that he was a perfect president by any means. You know, very few presidents ever are, you know, <laughs> but yeah, the sheer tonnage of things we'd prefer to have back uh, yeah. beyond Obama is, is pretty staggering. <laughs> Well, well, exactly, you know, and, and I'm saying this, I'm not even American, and I can, <laughs> I'm saying this and I can relate. But yeah, I think there, there is, there is a definite, there, there definitely seems to be something in the idea that Obama was himself, in some of his values, a little bit influenced by Star Trek and a little bit of that progressive worldview that he wanted to sort of evoke. You know, if, 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 if Nichelle Nichols was a big deal to him, then Star Trek was a big deal to him as a child, you know, and that, is something that denotes, in some senses, a fan. You know, if, if he's not a rabid fanboy, he's definitely a fan. He's definitely somebody who may well, if Star Trek's on the TV, may well watch and go, oh, I remember this one, you know, as a casual fan. And that's great. And that's something you can't really ascribe, I think, to any of the presidents, really, I can't imagine, necessarily, since the start of the show. I remember a vague anecdote, I vaguely remember an anecdote of when Al Gore was running for president in 2000 that he and his roommate Jones, when they were uh, in college, would watch it. So we, right. we missed out on one. But yeah, but okay. yeah, no, you're absolutely right. There's not, there's not a, a, a tie there that you can put to any other leader. And he is, like you said, he is very different from Cisco. I think in, re in reality, the only comparison you can make between them, I mean, apart from the fact they're both black, is also the fact that Cisco was the first black leader in Star Trek in a main series, and Obama was the first black president. Really, I think that's kind of the only tether. It's certainly not as acute as Kirk and Kennedy. And, and in that sense, it's just a bit tokenistic, isn't it, as a comparison? It doesn't really feel like he earns anything. No. The, the only other thing I would add to that is that the, their values as parents 
are somewhat analogous, yeah. but that is, that is certainly outside of a political uh, or leadership sort of uh, framework. So th- that's one thing I would say definitely ties them into it, together slightly. But certainly, mm. again, like we said, the timing's off for a reflection of, yeah. of the Obama era. There is perhaps there could be something to the fact that seeing a character like Cisco on television helped in terms of the American psyche to embed the idea of a black man in the, in the white house as being something that people would vote for. I think, I think there is potentially something, I mean, I think that's the power of in some sense of popular culture and entertainment, not that, not that it directly informs what people do, because I don't, I don't believe that, but I do think there is a, there is a power in visual iconography and ideas and seeing someone like Cisco, a hero, a leader, a good father, I think something like that has an embedded value within a society. And, and if, I think if I, Irish Stephen Bear were here, he would he would say that Deep Space Nine probably needed better ratings if it was going to influence politics going forward. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that <laughs> I say that as a as a dyed in the wool niner. It, it, it's yeah. it's the malign right. little the middle child, but I love it right. so. You're right. You're right. You are right there. That's probably very. <laughs> that's very very true. Yeah. So yeah, what about Janeway then, Cap- Catherine Janeway? Because she obviously the first female captain of a starship. Well, the first one with a lead of her own series. She wasn't the actual first portrayed female captain of a starship in Star Trek, but she is certainly the first leader, quote unquote, in a Star Trek series. The the, the comparison you hear all the time is Hillary Clinton, don't you, for, for Janeway? And and obviously, Clinton, Hillary Clinton never became president. Sadly, because I have the two, I wish she had, but she was close. She was almost in the, in the White House. I, I don't, I don't know about this one. I, I feel like it again. It's too. It's, I mean, I mean, yeah, it is. And and yes, okay, there is an overlap in the sense that Hillary Clinton was first lady for a chunk of Voyager's time. Um, in fact, for most of the time, Voyager was on air. Clinton was in the White House, but. Almost all of it. Bush came in 2000, 2000? January 2001, so Voyager right. was in the back half of its seventh season, yeah. So seventh it was, season, yeah. yeah. So it was it was a Clinton-era show, but I just don't I, I, I just don't see it. I think it's too, yeah, it's too tokenistic. It doesn't quite fit as a, a line between the two. Especially when uh, certainly American politics are so th- thoroughly sexist and were stealthily so in the 90s that there was almost a, a, a cordoned off wall between cultural depictions of women leaders and the politics of the time and going into now. It's interesting. The, the mo- I, I recently watched a good chunk of Voyager while my wife was rewatching it. And the, the thing that struck me and. Obviously, you're you're from the UK, so I'm I'm viewing this as an outsider with very surface sort of knowledge. But mm. uh, Janeway's sort of reflexive need to, and at times, sort of inexplicable need to resort to military solutions, brings to mind Margaret Thatcher. Is she more of a reflection of? the the politics of of your country than mine i think that might be the the simpler one but again it is tokenistic to think of to tie thatcher and janeway together simply because of gender the question becomes is she not an uh, uh, is she an analog of 
Hillary Clinton or is she an analog of Bill Clinton, who was in the White House for the, the vast majority of the time? Again, I don't think it's an easy comparison. Uh, certainly, uh, Janeway had a very specific mission statement in getting the crew of the Voyager home. And did Clinton have a mission statement? Uh, I don't know. St- don't stop thinking about tomorrow. I mean, a Fleetwood Mac so- song, I guess, is a mission statement it, as far as mission statements go. It beats the hell out of Keep America Great or Make America Great Again or whatever <laughs> he's on. Now. But again, it's it's not and not the the. Not the thorough analog that you would want to have, but I think that gets into a larger point of why is that? Why do do the shows of the 80s and 90s not reflect the politics, certainly the American politics of the era? I think in a post-Watergate era, we didn't want to see our leaders on TV. We wanted better leaders. We wanted more idealized mm. leaders. And that's why I think we got the the trifecta of Picard, Cisco, and Janeway. Yeah, I think I think there's something to that. I mean, there is there is the uh, the argument that Kirk becomes a bit more Reagan as he gets older. You know, particularly when we get to the the era of like the of the undiscovered country. You know, there is a little bit more of a Reaganite. And, and well, I, I think there Nixon is, there is to China. China. He, he becomes <laughs> Nixon essentially at that point. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So he, 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 you know, the old adage of you know you become more right wing as you get older. I think definitely applies to Kirk to some extent, particularly in the undiscovered country with how he how he is with the Klingons and things like that. But. It's interesting that he goes in, in the space of two movies from doing Greenpeace work to becoming <laughs> Nick. And yeah, in the middle, he that, found God. So I guess that works. Yeah, it's, a, it's a hell of a journey. Yeah. <laughs> but I think with Janeway, I mean, the, the, the Thatcher comparison is interesting. I mean, I, I grew I was born in 1982. So I don't quite remember... The, I was a I was a young child when Thatcher was in power. She she came out in 1990. I, th- I feel like it was. She was in for 11 years, and um, I was too young to really remember the Thatcherite era at the time. But I mean, her, her legacy in the UK is is I mean, since her death, particularly. I mean, let's just put it this way: w- when she died, there were people burning effigies of her. You know, uh, so <laughs> for really like, you know, and, and there was there was a song that got to number one in the charts um, that was Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead. And it was a, it was about Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, I think America is gearing up for a, a similar thing like that in the next several years. So, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, I, I'm not going to draw any judgments on people doing that. I, I I'm certainly not glad some, to see someone die. However, I I personally f- think that Thatcher's politics really did a lot of harm to the UK in particular. So I think from a from a political point of view, I don't think she completely tracks with Janeway. I think I think that you you've got a point about the intervention side of it. You've got a point about the strength. I mean, you know, she was a strong female. I don't know if role model is quite the right word because she wasn't very matriarchal. And this is the difference. Janeway is a mother ultimately to her crew. She, she puts her crew first. She wants to, she wants the best for her crew. Whereas, you know, Thatcher wasn't really a mother to the people. Thatcher, Thatcher was a money to the, was a mother to the money men, you know, and she, she, she put the economy first and put and, and helped breed, in my opinion, much more of a divide between rich and poor. So I think. There's a big difference in that sense. But I think in terms of strong female role models, not role models, well, strong female icons, leaders, I think 
and and with a, a reservoir of steel to some extent, I think there is some level of comparison. But that's about it, really. That reservoir of steel is a great t- term. I think that's that's where you could tie them together. But beyond that, it's uh, hard to it's harder to make the tie, and it's also hard to make the tie between Janeway and either of the Clintons. Yeah, because, I mean, Bill Clinton, I, I suppose the point you made about how there isn't a direct comparison in this era is because this era wasn't quite as tumultuous. You know, this era did have points of conflict. It had, you know, Gulf War. It had, you know, the the, the Balkan Wars. It had certain things. It, it wasn't completely stable. The 90s maybe wasn't quite as stable as we remember it from our perspective, but there was a a feeling of post-Cold War calm and progression that Clinton sort of, you know, ruled over. However, I think the fact that Clinton's, you know, Clinton's tenure was marked by controversy, by scandal, you know, by impeachment, you know, at one point, I think maybe his lack of moral character is something that you don't see in Janeway. I think Janeway has a strong moral character and an idealised, you know, female strength you know that you you never question. You know you you trust Janeway completely, and and I and I think I think that's where where there's a difference as well. Sure, I, I think it, you, we as the viewer may trust Janeway, but gosh, that crew like to disobey her orders. So you know it's... <laughs> that is true, actually. <laughs> but yeah, I, I it's it's not it's, it's interesting how yeah the parallels for those characters don't quite connect in the same way. It definitely is. Let's t- let's talk a little bit about the uh, the century to come. Then the twenty first century. So obviously now, once those characters are gone, you have we go back to the prequel era where we've got Jonathan Archer and the Enterprise. And you know, in terms of tragic timing, I mean, Enterprise debuts weeks, I think, after nine eleven happens in two thousand and one, and it's a series that I think suffered for the fact it exists completely in the shadow of that trauma and the the sort of inbuilt optimism that they wanted to recreate similar to the next generation and that era in enterprise just audiences just couldn't connect to that after such a shock so i mean you know we're now in the era of bush a, a hawkish era of military intervention, of strong, of, of you know, quote unquote, strongman politics, shock and awe. Yet Archer starts off as a very mild mannered, moral, strong kind of character in the vein of previous Star Trek eras. Uh, yeah, with a with a pinch of Doctor Sam Beckett from Quantum Leap in there, the, the sort of <laughs> for sure ah uh, shucks uh, wholesomeness that only Scott Bakula yeah. can bring to a show. Yeah, I, I think it certainly didn't start off as an analog to George W. Bush uh, because it was pr- uh, being produced at a time prior to, for ill, I would say, George W. Bush's presidency started to define itself. It, it's interesting that you mentioned that George W. Bush was a hawk, but he, I think he was willing to become a hawk for his time. This is not to retroactively forgive him for some of the things he did, but he ran certainly on a platform in 2000 of, of less military intervention than there was in the Clinton era that all, you know, collapsed. uh, uh, That's a awful term to use, but uh, it it all changed certainly with September 11th. And I think the show 
had to, it, it, I don't know if it had to change, but they certainly chose to change with that era. And certainly with the Zindi arc in season three, there's a lot of 9-11 corollaries there. I think uh, even sharper corollaries than uh, I think they were maybe reaching for in Star Trek Into Darkness later on. When you get to season three's anomaly, Archer is engaging not in waterboarding, but like spaceboarding uh, of people. And, and he has to descend to a certain level in his mind to protect the people of Earth and his crew. It's interesting in the postscript of that, once he gets to season four, he struggles with his role in in that to a certain degree, certainly has some introspection about it, where I don't think George W. Bush for a moment did. Mm-hmm. And, and that brings to mind another leader from the UK. Does that make him a little bit like Tony Blair? And does that make him any better? That's a question mm-hmm. for 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 certainly discussion. I'm not sure if I could answer it conclusively. It does make it does make you wonder because I mean the, Tony Blair is another. He's he's certainly not. I don't think hated to the extent Thatcher was because you know Tony Blair did preside over. It was he, his his whole prime ministership was was sort of a, a combination of both progressive and regressive factors because on the one hand his new Labour project brought in a lot of. You know, a lot of policies that very much balance the scales. You know, there was a lot more opportunities for people and different social economic barriers. Um, You know, Stratas when he was prime minister, he did a lot of good for a time in that in that sense. But equally, at the same time, he spent a lot of money and he went to war. And he's never seemed to quite regret those decisions to the point that I think people would have liked to have seen subsequently. Maybe that, and, yeah, like Archer did. <laughs> right, exactly. And and I think that's the difference in that Bush, I think, sort of really either believed the rhetoric that he was sort of do- on almost like a God-given mission to protect America or he was doing it to appeal to his base. You know, I mean, when we when you look back now, uh, given who's in the White House now and how he appeals to his base, I mean, Bush was tame, you know, and how he would do it, really. Eight years of George W. Bush, I never thought that he actively wished me harm. No. Nowadays, not so much. <laughs> uh, right, exactly. So, I mean, it was it was a, it was a different kind of, you know, at the time, everyone was like, oh, Bush this, Bush that, but you know, there there that is. History has not necessarily favoured him, but it certainly placed him on a different level to where we are now. But I think, I think ultimately we're dealing with leaders who took decisions that were against both international sort of advice in terms of countries, in terms of bodies, such as United Nations, etc., and were against a lot of people's wishes domestically. You know, there were huge protests certainly in the UK about the the Iraq war and involvement in the Iraq war for better or ill you know the second Iraq war for better or ill you know i mean there are still the the debate rages even today did they do the right thing should it should they have gone in etc cetera, etc cetera. you know did it cause more problems than it solved whereas archer in enterprise he's he's placed in a position where when they go into the expanse that he's he's far more on a mission to save the earth it's it's more of a literal immediate there is a doomsday weapon. We've got to go and save it. We've got to go and destroy it. Yeah, I, I think that's the, the the big gulf between political leaders and fictional leaders, because fictional leaders are created this very cut and dry sort of obstacle. A doomsday weapon has to be shut down, whereas we never ha- really have that moment 
maybe the Cuban Missile Crisis, again, going back to Kennedy, but you don't have that very clean story structure to our political leaders. And, and that's that's where it becomes a little less easy to tie this the, the, this concept down. Yeah, and there's, there, on, on that subject as well, there is also the there was also the big debate at the time about whether or not Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, which a lot of people said he didn't. You know, there, and there was a lot of lies spread about you know disinformation spread about that. You know, they tried to suggest there were there were these doomsday weapons. There was this th- genuine threat that he might attack a country, and it was never really there. And they used that as a basis for war. Whereas with Archer. And the Enterprise's mission, there is <laughs> literally a weapon that they've seen. They've seen cause this terrorist-like attack on Florida. What are you going to do about it? You know, Archer is forced into that role. Yes, yes, I think that's that's actually exactly right. But again, certainly the era influencing the storytelling, and certainly some of the decisions Archer made during that period. Hundred mm, percent, absolutely. It definitely influences the storytelling. I mean, it's something that I think in a few episodes' time we're going to go deep on, in terms of Enterprise and the War on Terror, because there there really is there really is a lot to unpack there. I think, but obviously after that we then move into the the movies. You know, the the the, re, the revival movies, and they are films that I mean, you've 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 got the whole sort of post nine eleven sort of reactionary elements in in things like particularly into darkness with Admiral Marcus and his hawkishness, and you've got elements of you know in all three of those movies you've got you know vengeful sort of almost terrorist villains looking to destroy the world or looking to do, to you know attack civilization in all three of those films, but you don't really get the sense that the the rebooted Chris Pinekirk is in any sort of line with Obama at the time because that was obviously the Obama presidency. I mean, I don't know what you think. I think I think the films are playing off nine eleven in their own way while still being blockbusters. But you don't again get the sense that there is the the, the parallel that Kirk had in the sixties in this era. Certainly, I, I think the 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 Kelvin verse movies are when they engage in the politics of the time. It's very much. In the way you described, there is a bad guy who wants to destroy things, and mm. it doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't deal with the nuance like some of the televised, and certainly for just for an example, Star Trek Six uh, definitely handled. Oh yeah, there's certainly a lot of post nine eleven hawkishness and into darkness, but it also feels sort of the Wikipedia version of that. There's not a lot yeah. of time to. <laughs> to think about it. And yeah. there, uh, I mean, I like those JJ Abrams movies, but there are plot holes to drive through. That's what I end up getting dwelling on. Like why, why was Nero just wandering around for 25 years? Okay. He was on <laughs> Repente, but they cut that scene out. Uh, yeah. So I, that's what that when I, when I think deeply about those movies, I'm not thinking about the politics of the Kelvin universe. I'm thinking no. about, you know, if, if the if Scotty's if 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 Khan can beam from Earth to Kronos, why are there starships anymore? That's where I my brain goes, <laughs> and quite rightly because that doesn't make a lick of sense. <laughs> so, so absolutely, I'm with you there. It, it's they're not they're not the films for that ultimately. You know, for better or worse, and I think that's why a lot of people aren't the biggest fans of those films. And like you, I enjoy them, but they're, they're more surface. They're more thrill rides. They're more action blockbusters. Um, even though, even if they do have interesting things in them, but then on this, in the topic we're discussing, there's not really that, that parallel there. It's whether or not it's there in the modern day, because obviously now we've got discovery, 
and Picard. And we don't really have leaders anymore in the same sense. You know, we have, you know, one of the key things about Discovery, and this is something that really struck me recently when I was rewatching it, is that the show begins with uh, Philippa Giorgio, who is essentially a, a Picard, a Picard from the 90s, exactly the same kind of character, cultured, strong, moral, in, you know, completely someone you trust. And she's killed straight away. You know, it's, it's the era's way of saying, we're not do we don't have those people anymore. They're gone. You know, <laughs> we've, we've now got the, uh, the mutineer. We've now got the, the, the warlike captain who is a step beyond in Lorca, who is a step beyond what Archer was forced to become in season three of Discovery. He is the, uh, in, in Enterprise. He is the guy, isn't he, who is willing to do whatever it takes. You know, I mean, I know ultimately, you know, he's an evil mustache twirling bad guy from the mirror universe, but before that. <laughs> then Reflective of our he, current era in politics. <laughs> well, 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 exactly. You know, but before then, he is the militaristic warlike leader who is basically turning around to Starfleet and saying, look, stop having a go at me. I'm doing what needs to be done. And that is such a big change for Star Trek. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you look at Lorca and you, I mean, he's he's not the, the preening clown that either of our countries is currently enjoying. It, it is that sinking feeling that not only are we in a, in a, in a fraught era for any number of reasons, but the people at the helm don't have our best interests at heart and beyond just that, that Thatcher, that George W. Bush model where they have priorities that, that feel wrong, but they actively dislike anyone who might get in their way mm-hmm. and not even dislike, but actively wish to take down anyone who gets in their way. It's a sad reflection. I like discovery. I, I think once they, once they shake Lorca off the, the regaining of that optimism is a, is a pretty potent fable of what we could do as a planet. If we can just chill out for six months, not looking good on that front, but you know, it'd be nice if we could. Yeah. The, the captain turns out to be from the mirror universe is, uh, is, is a pretty good headline for the last, five years of American politics, I would say. Uh, (laughs) But then again, Lorca was even trying to hide it. He had to, you know, try to play the civilized man to take the line from Mirror Mirror. It was far easier for a barbarian to act like a, uh, I'm sorry, far easier for a civilized man to act like a barbarian than it is for a barbarian to act like a civilized man. Mm -hmm. And Lorca actually does pretty well. He keeps the, the charade up longer than you would think a mere universe person could uh trump i think is actually from the mere universe he is not interested in in pretending uh for for any stretch of time even when it would be to his advantage to do so it's it's sort of baffling but then again i mean i i that's I'm not. I'm not telling the news to anybody here it, it's baffling well firstly with Lorca, i think i think the the key there is that there, you know, there there has been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of talk about how people have said, oh well, you know, 2016 was the point where we seem to slip into that other universe. You know, that was the that was the point where everything suddenly seemed we seemed to go, hang on, well, what's going on? How have we elected Donald Trump? How has Brexit happened? You know, how 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 has some and then you know subsequently how has someone like Bolsonaro been elected in? In Brazil, how is like Orban taking over Hungary and making it into, you know, how has Boris Johnson somehow, you know, become 
become prime minister. It, it is, it has been a consistent sort of slip into how is this happening? But then I think it's, it's one of those things where it's too easy. It is too easy to sort of suggest that this is something that's just happened. You know, all, all of these events are, are, are an, a payoff to a development of things that have been going on since the days of people like Thatcher, like Reagan and before Nixon, you know, a lot, even before that, you know, it, it's been a consistent build up to the point where you get a character like Lorca who represents, who is ultimately false. He is ultimately somebody. And the thing is with Lorca, you end up, the, 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 the turn only happens. And this is a credit to discovery actually. And I think that first season is really quite good in that, the moment he turns is the point you really like him. You know, you've got to a point where you like Lorca and he started to really feel a little bit more like a captain, you know, and, and that's the point where they turn it and they flip it and you go, of course he's from the Maria. How did we not see this all the way through? He was clearly like, he was like imprisoning tardigrades. He was, he had this eye thing, you know, he was, he was just, he was there was there was one episode that ends with him literally staring into a mirror <laughs> into the into the glass like <laughs> it was all there it was all there for us to see and I, I think it, it, it's that he perhaps is is another uh, he's kind of what you're saying these leaders what they're hiding from us and their true selves is clear as day we can see it but yet at the same time so many people seem to be duped so many people seem to have been lorked. And they're they're seeing they're seeing something. They're seeing the projection that these these leaders want to give, and maybe that's what maybe that's what Lorca, in his own way, kind of is. Well, and you you look at a captain on Star Trek, and you want to have faith in them, like the others. Yeah, it never occurs to you to to distrust the captain. And I think there's a lot of more perhaps traditionally minded people who gave Trump certainly on on our side of the pond. Uh, a a wide berth, a a a degree of benefit of the doubt, simply because he is our president and we should respect him, which is not something we should have done in this case. We should have shut that down real early. <laughs> we didn't. We messed up. <laughs> I don't think anybody quite quite grasped just what what he would be, though. I think even even when he was first elected, and everyone, you know, certainly when I woke up to that news, I was like, oh my god, really. But I don't think anyone quite anticipated where he would be today, and I and I think, I think that's that's maybe one of the reasons why. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll come back to discovery in a minute because we'll talk about Pike and what he represents. But maybe that's one of the reasons why Picard isn't isn't leader is doesn't doesn't have a leader. I mean, the, the thing with Picard is that he is he is a representative of an older age. You know, he is, he represents a, that point of stability, that age where you did have faith in a leader. And he's somebody who's fallen. He's somebody who has lost faith in himself. He's lost faith in the world around him. And he represents an era of stability, of peace, of a point where everyone thought, you know, one of the things that I've said before on Make It So on, on our network is, you know, everyone thought the 24th century had cracked it. Everyone thought by the end of the 24th, yeah, we'd had the Dominion War and everything like that. But nobody thought when, when they got to the turn of the 25th century that the Federation would become isolationist, that the Mars attack would have happened, that, you know, the Romulan Empire would crumble. Suddenly all these massive seismic shifts, which we've kind of experienced in our own world, you know, in the last few years, suddenly upended the entire Star Trek universe. And Picard was just left reeling as a man. He's like, how did this happen? Like, I'm not even in Starfleet anymore. I'm living on my farm. 
And that's the, that's what I think is interesting about Picard in that I did think, Mac, when, when they first announced Picard, somebody said to me, what do you think the, the story's going to be? And I said, well, maybe Picard will be Federation president. Maybe he'll be like somebody who is like trying to be a good president in this world. But I think what they ended up doing makes a lot more sense. <laughs> And I, I was talking with a good uh, a good Star Trek fan friend of mine. And they said they hadn't watched Picard yet because they just couldn't handle a darker Federation. Uh, and I was like, no, the part of the joy of the show, and it hasn't really reached its full picture yet. But Picard is this man alone trying to bring that back. And it's yeah. interesting. It, yeah, it, it, it stems from that that sort of Lorca model of the captain isn't where we should be putting our faith anymore. And in this case, the captain has stepped aside. He is trying to uphold those values of the Federation, but he's had to go underground to do it. I mean, you look at the post-presidency of Barack Obama, there's almost a certain corollary there in that yeah, he is, he's having to do it. He's having to still be that symbol of hope, but it is not in the traditional power structure of the United States government or Starfleet. Uh, we don't have functional leaders on any, in any stretch of the imagination. So now Star Trek has mustache twirling villains in, <laughs> in, in the chair and our best captain potentially has had to go underground. And that is a depressing yeah. thought, but hopefully we'll round the corner in some degree here and maybe the federation in picard will will re re rebound a little bit but then you see the trailers for uh discovery season three and you're thinking Feder federation's going to have some rougher times ahead and that but that's that's the thing i think that what start one of the things and this is why i do think and i've had don't get me wrong mac i've had my 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 issues with some of this new era some of the storytelling some of the writing you know, etc. I have had my issues with it, but I think ultimately I'm starting to see a, a larger sort of thematic pattern of what they're doing. And I think it will be better appreciated in time, like a lot of Star Trek series are, for what they're actually trying to do, which is, which is to make the point that this future isn't one we can take for granted anymore. You know, these leaders, these people who are supposed to lead us to this you, you idealized utopian future. And I tell you what, I did not have recently some debates on Reddit about this in that there are a lot of people, which is probably shouldn't, something I shouldn't be doing, Matt, going on Reddit and having big debates, but I did about, <laughs> about lots of people piling on Picard saying, it's dark. I don't like it anymore. And I'm saying, look, you're missing the point. The whole point is that they're trying to make the, make the point that we can't take this unit, this world for granted. We can't take the 23rd and 24th centuries for granted. Look at where we are. Look at all the terrible things that are happening. Look at, look at the climate, the fact we're destroying our own planet. You know, it took Star, Star Trek had to have a World War Three that killed billions before they got to the Vulcans, got to first contact. You know, we've, we've got to, we've got to remember, do, is that what we want? Is that what we need? You know, and that's, that's why I think, People are missing the point a little bit about Picard. And, and, and particularly, you're absolutely right. I think that's exactly what it's saying. We can't look to the leaders anymore. You know, they, they are not demonstrative of who we, who we need to follow, who we need to believe in. We need to look at people who represent a moral standard and whether that is people who used to be in power or whether that is people who aren't in power, but represent an ideal. 
you know, and, and I think that's fascinating. And if Star Trek continues to do that, then I think that will be really, really interesting. Yeah. In the, in the pure prophets in the celestial temple fashion, the shape is not complete yet. We, in linear time, yeah. we have not seen what the, these stories are yet. Uh, we've seen the beginning. I think, I mean, you mentioned issues with the writing in, in, in some of these early seasons, but I would say stack discovery, discovery's first two seasons and Picard's first season against the early seasons of next generation D space nine or Voyager. Yeah. Yeah. or even Enterprise. And I think they're batting pretty well. I think it's really I agree. like I think when they as I think Jonathan Frakes even put it in an interview, once they finally grow their beard, they're going to be off and running. <laughs> and he's right. He's right. I mean, I I've got a I've got a lot of hope for Discovery season 3 in particular. I I really do think it's going to be it's going to be good. And you know, I think you're right. I think I think it'll be interesting as well to see what they do with Pike because we obviously saw Captain Pike then became the, you know, the, the nominal temporary captain for Discovery in season two. And, you know, I won't lie, Mac, I didn't like a lot of season two of Discovery. I won't, I'll, I'll be honest. And it's something that I'm keen to revisit and look at again. But one of the things, one of the consistent things I did like was, was Pike. I thought Anson Mount was great. And I thought the way they brought that character, even if I didn't necessarily like all of the, the, the plot developments they did with him, I really liked what they did with that character. But what interests me about Strange New Worlds, which is obviously going to be the Pike-led show, is how are they going to, how are they going to portray that character? Because you have, in theory, you have a Star Trek series that is intentionally being designed to react to the fan adoration of seeing the Enterprise, of seeing Spark and Number One. And the, I mean, we've been building to nostalgia all the way through this modern era. It's all been about nostalgia. It's all been about looking back to previous eras. This is the fulcrum of that. This is, let's basically make the original series again, to some extent, in the modern day. So are we going to see Pike, who, and this is the thing, Pike now knows what's going to happen to him, or he has an idea that he's going to suffer this awful fate at some point in the future. So are we going to see Pike be much more of an upbeat, optimistic model of, of the kind of leader that we wish we had and we want to get back to or is he going to be somebody who is dual who is traumatized by the knowledge that he's got this quite dark future and he's having to balance that with being the the captain the starfleet captain the bastion of you know moral value and you know fortitude and all this that's what fascinates me about on strange new worlds or will they just ignore it the, the thing about discovery season three is that it, it's going to unmoor itself from canon and yeah. and is able to be its own thing. Whereas Strange New Worlds is going to be very hung with that same problem that uh, some of Discovery season one, season two had, where they had well-established canon that they had to reconcile with. And Strange New Worlds is going to have to do that even more so. I think Pike is such a revered captain in the lore of Star Trek. You can't take him off the beaten path too much. So much so that in the 24th century, there's a Christopher Pike Medal of Valor. You can't That's darken great. him up for those remaining years that he's going to be at the helm of the enterprise. I think, I, I think if I were writing the show, I would definitely keep that foreknowledge of uh, the gamma radiation. I think is what he got hit with at, at the forefront of his mind, because then you could even tell a very poignant tale about being completely aware of the dangers and perhaps the dark days ahead, but maintaining your own, that that own moral code for the sake of that moral code. He's not going to go through a negotiation period where he tries to get out of it or anything like that. I think he's going to accept his fate 
and do the best with the time that he has left. And that would be a good fable, for lack of a better term, for our era that we we can't we don't have to have. We don't have to be dominated by the bad things that happen to us or the leaders that we are subjected to. We can rise above that and return to perhaps that 60s era optimism that that the original series had. That's my thinking on it. If I were to write it, I would I would make that the the only they're they're saying it's going to be much more episodic, Strange New Worlds. But I would make that foreknowledge the the only serialized runner through the show and make Pike uh, uh, perhaps a dead man walking. But he is aware of his fate, but he's not fully aware of his fate because he doesn't know that after this happens, he's going to end up getting to go back to Talos Four. So there, there's still that happy ending for him, and if I think he he can keep his his wits about him, he he'll he'll be a, he'll be uh, again. He was the best part of Discovery season two. I think he, he, that show will be pretty great. I, I agree, and and it could be quite fitting actually that he is, like you say, a captain trying to do the best he can in a gloomy, ominous circumstance where the future is not certain where the future is potentially clouded and if there isn't a better metaphor for an incumbent leader you know (laughs) if we're lucky an incumbent joe biden who is by no means perfect himself but he's somebody who i don't anticipate will be the kind of leader trump has been well the absence of a leader you know trump isn't a leader he is he he's not a leader there is no way you can call that man a leader he's a sideshow he's a he's a circus act yeah, exactly. So he's he's not. Whereas Biden will attempt to be of some description a leader in the middle of a situation that is, you know, I mean, d- b- bursting apart at the seams and trying to bring some stability to an extremely fractious period in world politics and world and society. And that will be a re- if he gets elected, that will be a really really hard, um, you know, job. And I think it will be interesting to see if Pike reflects that actually, and if. You know, Strange New Worlds sort of reflects that in a weird way. They might actually be timed quite, <laughs> quite in sync if that does happen. But well, the future will tell there, as will what what we see with Lower Decks as well, the animated series, which seems to be about people cleaning up after the captain. <laughs> so maybe they're just a little bit ahead of us, the Star Trek writers, and they can kind of have a, see a little bit of what's coming. But yeah, it's it's very interesting to think about all of these all of these captains in relation to the, the leaders of of the past, the present, you know, and maybe even the future. So, Mac, it's been great to talk through this with you. Actually, I've I've really got a little bit of a different insight into some of these characters and some of their their comparisons here. So it's been great. I say the same to you. <laughs> <laughs> well um why don't you point people towards then where um a where they can find the holodeck is broken so they can go and have a listen and also if you're online where you can point them to and uh, where else they can find you certainly uh uh the production company that runs our our podcast our network is uh party now apocalypse later industries uh we uh the website is partyapocalypse.com you can find a lot more uh, of my stuff there uh books i've published uh my blog movie reviews uh the other podcasts we do on our network uh including uh the holodeck is broken the last couple of years we did a uh an audio drama called the fourth wall which is very steeped in sort of the star trek ideal so if you if anyone out there is a, a deep space nine fan you'll find a lot to love in that show and that's also on the awesome. website 
Yeah. Uh, my, uh, my, uh, you can find me on Twitter at party apocalypse, uh, and just, yeah, come see me there. Everything that we do in the future will, will show up there as it becomes available. Perfect. Thanks a lot. That's great. I urge everyone to go and do that and uh, go and check out everything Mackie's, Mackie's up to because that's brilliant. <laughs> You're blended already.